Hello and welcome to Meet My Potential podcast where we talk to leaders from around the world to inspire and to ignite your potential. Now, how do you make the right decisions? We all want to make right decisions and not the wrong ones. Everyone is looking, at least I know that I am constantly looking for like, how do I make that right decision? And is there a formula? Well, I don't know if there's a formula, but there definitely is a framework in David Siegel's book on Decide and Conquer. David Siegel is the CEO of Meetup and has a pretty good framework that's gonna help every leader make better decisions. So let's welcome him and learn straight from him. Welcome, David. Thank you, it's great to be here. And you know, sometimes it actually is okay to make the wrong decisions as long as you learn from the decisions. And you've, I've made so many failures and mistakes and the key is you, know, you don't do it a second time, but you know, that's okay to make the wrong decisions sometimes. Just learn from it and, and change things fast, right? And keep going, right? Keep going, exactly. keep going. Exactly. And yet you've written a book with, you know, lots of different components of how we can make better decisions. And before we get into that, David, tell me, like, how did you make that decision to write that book on decision making? Okay, wow. Lots of decision talk. So I'd always been obsessed with the concept of writing some form of a leadership book related to decisions. And the reason for that is because I've seen so many people that I've like worked with in life that think that not making a decision is okay, but actually not making a decision is a decision in and of itself. And inertia mm -hmm. can be the worst decision. In fact, Teddy Roosevelt once said, the best decisions are great decisions. The second best decisions are bad decisions and the worst decisions are no decisions. And that had always struck with, stuck with me for like a long time. So I've always been obsessed with that concept, but I didn't want to write one of these like boring textbooky books where, you know, it's 250 pages of the exact same concept over and over again. I wanted like a great narrative, a great story, something that just was a roller coaster experience. And Adam Newman and WeWork came knocking on my door asked me to become you know, the first outside CEO of Meetup. And there's just filled with so many crazy stories of the WeWork culture, uh, the Meetup culture, having to run Meetup when you couldn't actually meet up in person. Exactly. exactly. And you know, it's just made for a really important and exciting narrative. And I'd rather teach through storytelling than teach kind of with direct principles. And, and that's why I decided to write the book. Fabulous. So before we get into decision-making, Tell us a little bit about Meetup. Sure. So Meetup is the world's largest platform for finding and building community. So what that means is we have 56 members, 56 million members. If we have 56 members, that wouldn't be that exciting. 56 million members all around the world in 190 different countries. And we have 300,000 groups and 300,000 communities. And we help people find their people. And we help people find things that they're passionate about. So it could be anything from hiking. It could be to technology, to learning a language, to a support group, to help people around any related support that they might need. We help people build community and our mission is really about curing the loneliness epidemic. And it's a very noble mission, something I deeply believe in because so many people out there, especially because of COVID, even before COVID, kind of regularly feel lonely. 
Right. There's so many meetups all over the world in every single city almost today. And the whole core and the essence of meetup before COVID was to meet in person, see the person, feel the energy, look at the smile, laugh together. You know how it is when 10 people start laughing on a Zoom call. It's not the same thing. It's noisy. It's annoying. And whereas if you're in a room full of people, you hear 10 people laughing, that just brings you so much energy. That must have been one of the hard decisions for you to pivot from face-to-face to to going on the internet. How did you make that decision? Yeah, and Deepa, you are so right. Like, I really do believe that people have like an energy around them. And when you're, you know, when you're sitting there in a lunch meeting or you're sitting there in a big group and you just want to high-five the people, just you feel that connection between people. It's just not the same when you're remote. In fact, the number one reason why we did not allow an organizer, a meetup organizer to create a group is because they wanted to group create a remote only virtual type group so we turned down tens of thousands of organizers prior to the pandemic to becoming meetup organizers and then suddenly we see 95 percent of events and rsvps canceled in china in february you know 2020 and then moving to italy and then moving to western europe and france and other countries like and it would never come to us right never gonna come to us us is a giant shield around it and we're impervious to everything that's not gonna happen to us right we escaped ebola but that's not gonna happen to us but it did happen right (laughs) oh my god it did happen and then we got everyone in a room actually coincidentally in New York City, one of the biggest hospitals in Mount Sinai Hospital, the second case of COVID was from a meetup employee. And we were one of the first companies to meet up all about in person to have to start working remotely from home. So ironically. So we got everyone together, actually remotely, because we already started working from home. And a lot of people said, we're meetup. We're all about getting together in person. We're all about IRL. And I said, no, we are all about connections. We're all about building deep connections between people and people need connections even more. Let's focus on our mission around connections, not around the tactic of IRL to get connections. And since the pandemic was initiated two years plus ago, there's been now over 5 million online meetup events. Over 30 million people have participated online and online is here to stay. And around 74% of our meetup events are in person and 26% are online. And there's some benefits to online. You lose the energy, some of the energy, but you gain the ability to build relationships with people around the globe. Mm. And to have opportunities uh, for things. Can I just stop you right there? Because you spoke about it in such a very simple way. You know, for years and years together, you turn away people who ask you for online events and then suddenly you're holding on the tactic has somehow become a behavior has somehow become a way of doing things and it's not easy to just switch from one tactic to another especially when you've been holding ground and you've been arguing on that and you've been turning away people how was that for you you know sometimes when your back is against a wall it makes it a lot easier to make a decision and i felt like meetup was an existential crisis I felt like we were even at risk of the company being shut down. And Meetup has done too much good for the company to potentially be shut down. So sometimes emergencies and necessity is the mother of all invention. And I can't say that, you know, I was this great thinker that that came up with this and, and said, you know, we have to do this. We had to do it. I deeply believed that Meetup would not end up ended up surviving the pandemic because at that time we were losing $20 million a year and we're in the middle of a sale process out of WeWork. 
And I really felt like we had no other alternative. And there were still people from we were meetups, old culture that said, we can't do this. I'll just say a very funny story, not funny, but you know, telling story, which mm-hmm. our founder, Scott Heiferman, whom I took over for as the first outside CEO, kind of a meetup's history. He went on stage at a WeWork event and he was so against anything virtual, anything online. He took a giant sledgehammer up on stage and smashed a VR device, a virtual reality device and said, we are all about in person. We are never going to be about online. Sure enough, we had to be. And I also felt like there was a lot of pain and a lot of isolation and a lot of suffering that people were going through. And to me, our job is to help to support people during their times of need. And we had to do it online. So it, it really did become an easy decision. What was hard though, is our product never worked for online. Our product was always, we never even have like time zones. We didn't have like lots of capabilities. We rolled something out in three days that was a very minimum viable product with a whole bunch of bugs in it. And then we kind of redid it and we fixed it later on. But it was very important to get out there, even with a product that was not, that was imperfect because we knew the need was so high. David, for you, like at Meetup, at that point of time, in that crisis, it became an existential crisis. So a decision had to be made. A lot of times, leaders tolerate behaviors in organizations which should not be tolerated. Green culture, for instance, people hiding information, people trying to look good, which creates unpleasantness at the next level. And at the bottom level, people just feel like a headcount. And you know that you're up against a tough culture, but at the same time, it hasn't become an existential crisis. So driving that sense of urgency we know is important. And so what would be your advice to a leader to make a decision who's not making a decision? Yeah. First step is to appreciate what I had said initially, which is by not making a decision, first of all, you are making a decision. That's number one. Number two is there's oftentimes a lack of an appreciation for the toxicity of some Mm -hmm. individuals in an organization. They look at, oh my God, the salesperson is killing their number, is bringing in so much money to the company, even though they act inappropriately, et cetera, et cetera. You know, there's the things that show up and they're tangible, and then there's the intangibles. And too often leaders put too much stock on the tangibles, meaning like sales, revenue, et cetera, and not enough in the intangibles. But if you are a leader and deeply believe that culture matters, if you don't believe that culture matters, I can't help you, can't help you. But if you believe that culture, because I'm not gonna convince you that culture matters. If you don't believe that culture matters and you're a leader, like stop leading. But if you believe that culture matters in a company, one person, can truly have a very negative impact in destroying a culture. And there's enormous amounts of negative impacts in terms of people leaving, in terms of people being demotivated, in terms of just unethical behavior that can happen from one individual. And I have let go of quote unquote superstars in companies that just frankly were not the right, we're not moving the company forward in positive ways. And once you do it, you realize, wow, what took me so long? You rightly said, just one person. It's just enough if there's one person and you tolerate that person's behavior. You're actually saying, it's okay to hide information. It's okay to just be focused on KPIs and numbers and not look at customer value. It's okay to actually harass people on short-term goals and just be focused on your next progression or your next salary hike. That's exactly the message that you're indirectly passing on. 
Yeah, and people know. People look at not what you say. They look at what you do. And if you're not taking an action, even if you talk about all these things in front of a company about values and other things that are important, if you promote people that are that are antithesis of those values, if you hire people that are the antithesis of those values, people know and they could call out BS. And they do, and every and you can't hide it. So don't bother ever trying. I can talk about culture for another one hour. Help us understand what are some of the key ingredients. Like you've got like lots of key ingredients in your book, and I'm going to recommend everybody to immediately go ahead and decide and conquer. Because if you do want to conquer, you need to make a decision, and if you want to make a decision, you need to read David's book. So, David, what are the three important components of decision making for you? Okay, sure. So here goes. So number one, let's start with something we've been talking about, which is. There's the cult of the CEO, the Elon Musks and the Jeff Bezos of the world that you kind of need to be an asshole. I don't know if you could say that or not, but you need to be an asshole to succeed in business. And the reality is, is that the world of CEOs that have been fired that are assholes is a mile long. People just know the famous ones that could be assholes <laughs> as well. Be kind. When you make a decision, Figure out the kindest way to make that decision to help other people around you. And there's a big, big difference between being nice and being kind. People mistake them all the time. People think that they should be nice. And when it's not nice to have to let someone go. It's not nice to give constructive feedback to someone. not nice to say to someone, I know that this is what you want to do to help you in your career, but the company needs you to do X, Y, Z, which is different than that. But it's kind to sometimes tell someone you're not doing the right thing right now and you might need to and you and you need to move on. Be comfortable, prioritize being kind, but be comfortable being kind and not just always having being nice all the time. So that's number one in terms of decision making. That's really important. Be a kind leader as we make decisions. When you are kind, you're being actually very clear of what's okay, what's not okay. You're setting the right boundaries. Oh, you said it so well. It is unkind to have a lack of clarity. When people yeah. have ambiguity, it's one of the most stressful experiences for employees. I've been the subject of managers who are just ambiguous and lack clarity. When you're kind and you're clear versus when you're nice and you're unclear, it's a lot better to be more clear. People want clarity. So you, you really hit the nail. Thank you for, yeah, for we're adding playing, that. We're playing the spy game. Oh, are you going to say that? Are you going to share this information? Oh, but I know that. I know you've got the budget for that project, but you're not telling me. When are you going to break the news? <laughs> That's <laughs> it's shocking that people don't understand the importance of, and I'll say the next one, which is yeah. the importance of kind of disagreement and conflict when it comes to decision making. So and I say disagreement and conflict, I mean healthy conflict and healthy tension, not unhealthy, not passive aggressive type behaviors. So you know, Abraham Lincoln, you know, the US president was famous for building a cabinet around him who constantly was, was his rivals and disagreed with him constantly. Surrounding yourself by people who will disagree will ultimately lead to a better decision. If you surround yourself by people who are just yes people, that's not effective in decision making. And we do a lot actually in meetup processes to, we, we, before making a decision, we, we, we put document everything in a Google Doc. Documentation is important for, for clarity and for alignment, like we talked about earlier. And after you document everything, we share the document with everyone and we ask people to disagree prior to the meeting. And why that's so important, Deepa, is that introverts oftentimes 
don't have as much of an opportunity to disagree because they need to process information and they need to think about things a little bit more than people like me, how I might be more extroverted. But actually, I think introverts can add a lot more value than extroverts. So the second principle of decision-making is how can you build disagreement into the culture of a company in a way that's as helpful as possible for all people to effectively disagree versus only those people who like get into a meeting and you know are aggressive and disagree. That's the second principle I think is particularly important in decision-making. Yeah, I wonder how that might be. Like if I have an idea and if I just want everybody to come into the meeting and smash me down with how they might just disagree with me, I wonder how enthusiastic I would be. So it actually does require a lot of courage to walk up there and hear people and allow that conversation. And I think this is a great practice, David. You said it so easily. And I would just welcome and invite everybody, just check, can you have a small version, a safe test that will make you feel comfortable to have one of those safe meetings with, let's say, your team members, and you ask them to come up with at least three areas where they disagree with you on that particular, let's say, your idea or whatever project or whatever the subject of the meeting is. That would just be a safe way to start that. And you're actually, David, in this, you're allowing, you're giving permission to people to disagree with you. Very often, we're not given that permission for people. And we can't just go up and walk up to certain people and disagree with them because that sometimes just means consequences like, oh, you're not given the most important job the next time around, or you're not invited to an important meeting because you tend to disagree with me. How do you manage those kind of situations? Yeah, again, I hate to say it, I've got culture again, but we train our managers, our leaders, and we say to them, invite disagreement. And the best way to do that is setting a good example yourself. Mm -hmm. So after every time almost that I say something at work, I'll be like, who disagrees? Tell me who disagrees. Speak up right now. Why do you disagree? I don't think I'm necessarily right. I want to hear what you think. <laughs> like, I literally just repeat the same things over and over again. It doesn't matter what the... And if you're more junior, I do it even more aggressively because... If you're yeah. less experienced, you're more reluctant to disagree with the CEO. And if you just say it over and over and over again, then then as people kind of develop in their careers, they see the CEO doing it, and then the vice presidents doing it, the vice and the directors see the vice presidents doing it, and the managers see the directors doing it. And you set a tone for the organization that we will make better decisions through disagreement. And and then the other thing that I do is really important, is when someone disagrees. I'm never defensive about it. It's so important. Even if I don't necessarily fully disagree with their disagreement, I'll be like, you know what? <laughs> that is so helpful to hear. I really want to spend a little more time thinking about it because the moment that you say you start acting defensively if someone disagrees, at that moment, you're basically nullifying the whole principle Telling them of to disagreement. Shut up. Exactly. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. So how you react to the disagreement is actually more important than just facilitating a... Uh, a culture of disagreement, but ultimately better decisions get made when you do that. So for those of you who are listening out there and you want to implement this, this is one tip. David just mentioned that you need to say that again and again. Research proves that you need about 60 touch points before someone buys your product. So in the same way, you need to repeat the same message several times before someone's going to pop up and start disagreeing with you. So if you're shifting your culture, do keep doing that several times and one day people will start disagreeing with you. Oh my gosh, Deepa, what I tell people is, unless as a leader, you're sick of hearing it yourself, of repeating the same thing over and over again, you haven't said it enough times. Like, I am so tired of saying almost the same thing over and over again, but I know how important it is to say the same statement and... 
that's what you have to do. And, yeah. and, and the other time is less experienced leaders oftentimes are like, well, I already told people that. That's not good enough. You really need to repeat it so many times. So thank you for, that's awesome. Okay. And the third important component of making decisions. Okay. So I think an area that people tend to underestimate the importance of is what I call optionality in making a decision. So what I mean by optionality is there's two options. One option can open up a significant number of opportunities for you. And the other option might be a trapdoor decision and can close off a significant number of opportunities. Oftentimes people will say to me, David, you're so lucky, you're so lucky. How'd you get so lucky? Part of the thing for me is I think about taking an action and how many additional options are created by taking that specific action. I'm on this amazing Mm -hmm. Meet My Potential podcast. I made the decision to join the podcast and it's option creating. There's all these different options that could happen. I get to meet Deepa and all these other listeners and that's great. But then there's other decisions that could be a closed door decision, a trap door decision. So as you think about something, think about how you are creating potentially lucky things to happen to you. And I deeply believe that you can actually work hard to create your own luck and have just spontaneously things happen because of the fact that you set yourself up for them to happen in the first place, because you're thinking about what options you're creating. Mm. You know, I come from a very middle, middle, middle class family in India. When I was small, I used to ask my dad, dad, don't you want to buy a nice house? And my parents didn't have the money to buy a house when I was small. And my dad said, look, if I bought a house, I have only one house. But now I can go rent houses wherever I want. And so I have more options. And I actually, like, we changed houses, like, every two years, okay? So oh, I've maximum I've stayed in houses, like, for two years. And we moved cities often. And so, you know, I've lived in, like, so many different kinds of houses. And actually, those were options vis-a-vis if my dad had the money then to have the nice, perfect house, we would have just had one house. Amazing. Think about who you are as a person, think about your comfort in meeting new people, think about all the different experiences you've had because of the fact that you've you've had to shift houses and meet new people frequently and handle situations and the resilience that comes from being in those situations, that's creating these amazing capabilities for you that wouldn't have have happened if you kind of put everything into one big bucket and just see what what happened there. Right, okay. Too often people will, will, let's say they're applying for a job, and they're like, oh, I, I spent hours researching something and I finally found the perfect job. No, apply like a hundred different things, meet a hundred different people, and then something good will end up potentially happening. There's a lot higher likelihood than just like getting, you know, into the perfection, you know, uh, um, just looking for that one perfect thing. Great. So three components to summarize to make better decisions, be kind. And that not just means be kind to others, but also be kind to yourself, be kind with yourself, start with yourself first. The second one is disagree and engage in constructive conflict. Might be a hard one, but check out if you can do that. You might want to start up with creating a list of pending conversations that you have with five people in your ecosystem what are the list of conversations that you've been putting aside and see where do you disagree with them how can you invite them to disagree with you and have a constructive conversation and the last one is whenever you're up to something look at how you can create more options for yourself thank you david for sharing your three tips and if you want more options on how you can make better decisions go read david's book again back to david david your personally what was one of the worst decisions you made in your life worst decisions so 
career-wise or personal-wise? What, what do you prefer? Career-wise. Career-wise. Okay, let's start with that. So because I'm ambitious and because I always wanted to, frankly, become a CEO and run a company, there were times in my career, and I'll give you a specific example, that I put my ego and myself ahead of what was actually in the best interest of the business that I was running. So for example, after business school, I was 26 years old when I graduated and I was very eager to have like a big business reporting into me. And I worked for a big pharmacy chain in the New York area and for, on a new technology called Dwayne Reed Express. And it, it was something that the United States had never seen before. Rather than having to go to a pharmacy, drop off a script, come back, very inefficient process, pick up a prescription. You could go to a kiosk in a doctor's office or in a hospital, video conference with someone, and then suddenly you're able to get the script delivered to your home. Totally new invention. I built 50 kiosks and I saw you know, the technology wasn't quite right. Then I kept growing, growing, built 100 kiosks. Technology started breaking down. And I just wanted to keep growing and building and building, even though I knew that the technology wasn't there, I figured we'd find a way to fix it and swap things out. Bottom line, we ended up going up to 200 kiosks, $20 million in revenue. I had 40 or 50 people reporting into me. I thought that everything was great. I knew it wasn't though. I knew that we had serious problems in the business because the technology was, was, wasn't working really. And at the end of the day, the, a new CEO came and he said, David, what the hell have you been doing in expanding this thing when it's not there? I didn't have a good answer. He shut the entire business down. He asked me to move to another role. I ended up leaving the company to choose to work for a different company. But it is an example of if you keep pushing against what's really the right decision, the truth ends up always coming out. And sometimes you need to move fast to move slow. And sometimes you need to go slower and you end up actually going faster. And this, the, the company histories, whether we work as an example that have 47 billion valuation down to like 5 billion valuation today, or any times where ego gets prioritized for people in their decisions, when in reality, it ends up not really helping them, not really helping the company. And what about all those people that worked for me that also lost their jobs? That's terrible, terrible domino effect to a poor leadership decision. And I, and I definitely deeply regret it. Mm-hmm. That resonates so much with me. I've been working with so many companies and I can recognize how decisions are made by the ego. And this is exactly why the kind of messages that are passed to the next level are go do it. And the real issues, the real challenges are not looked at. We miss that. That's a very valuable lesson. Thank you for sharing that with us. Yeah, of course. I think the other lesson just to share is people are not comfortable talking about their mistakes and failures enough. When I meet with someone and they're able to really in rich detail share the mistakes that they've made in their past, I have so much more respect for that person because it means that they made a mistake and they learned from that mistake. Like we talked all the way up front, I think it's so valuable to share mistakes because that way people can learn from your mistakes and others. And you know, when I wrote the book, people said, David, it was so courageous of you. You talked about this failure, that failure, this mistake, that Like it wasn't courageous. It was just a good way to teach people. And the goal is to help people to learn. That's all that yeah, matters. Exactly. I run tribes. I run tribes uh, where people come because they want to change their behavior. And people come from all over the world to do this Rethink Leadership program that I have. And people come and they talk about a behavior that they want to change. And they talk about how they failed miserably, how they've let people down, how that it is a challenge for them to change that behavior. And it creates 
such a deep connection, mm. like that level of vulnerability, yeah. which actually makes us feel terrible to share that is actually what creates that deep level of connection. So what we run from is actually what creates connection. Oh, I love it. I mean, at Meetup, one of the things we talk about all the time is to create forums and communities where people could be their vulnerable self and to share their challenges. And, you know, it is so powerful to be in a place where there's people aren't judging you. Exactly. They're only judging you if you're not being your vulnerable self. That exactly. should be the only judgment that's actually provided. <laughs> yeah. And I just love that you do that. And it, it's so helpful for, frankly, on a professional level and on a personal level. Brene Brown, of course, talks about vulnerability all the time. And so many of these things that are important on a personal level are like forgotten about when it comes to professional success. And they think that they're two separate you know, you could, you could fake who you are professionally and, and, and it just doesn't work. You have to be the same person personally and professionally. And the same challenges you have personally are the same challenges you're going to have professionally as well. And it's at every single touch point from the time I got in touch with you on LinkedIn to the messages that I've had with you driving up to this particular meeting to meeting you. I've always felt that kindness, that humbleness. And I know that I'm talking to the same person. So you're a fabulous example of that. And before we close this episode, what's one fabulous decision that you've made professionally in your life? To be on Meet My Potential podcast, clearly. <laughs> well, <laughs> thank you. And what's one last message you'd like to share with the audience? Sure. Last message is, you know, sometimes you don't know what's important or why something is important. But at a young age, when I was 17 years old, I chose a certain quote for my yearbook in graduating high school. And I'm gonna share that quote because I just so deeply believe in it 30 years later as a 47 year old. And the quote is, sometimes in our pursuit of happiness, it's important to pause and just be happy. And I think too often in business and in life, we're overly ambitious towards the future. And when we're 80 years old, we're gonna be like, in just another 10 years, I'm gonna be happy. No, life doesn't work like that. Find ways of being present, Find ways of building joy and meaning today. And if you're unhappy today, don't just think that magically you're going to be happier in the future because you have more money or have a higher position or you have the right partner in life. Find ways of focusing on the now and the short term, and it'll build you up for the long term. And that would be my message. Thank you. You've said that so beautifully. Most highly driven people are extremely ambitious, always chasing the next goal, the next one. Brains are switched on 24 bar seven. And when do you stop? How do you stop and enjoy life that you have today and not when you reach that next target or the next one or the next one? It is right now, right here. So have a beautiful day. And thank you so much, David, once again, for being here with us. Oh, I learned so much. Thank you, Deepa.